Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast, and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 11, and I'm joined by professional better Nathan Snow. Nathan started out on the bookmaking side and progressed to the betting side, where today he is a renowned figure in Sydney betting circles. Nathan specializes in Sydney racing and discusses some of the tools he uses to win betting professionally. Nathan touches on Betfair, his time in the Sydney betting ring, and much more. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Nathan Snow. Today, I'm joined by Nathan Snow. Nathan, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Nathan, why don't you start uh, with a little bit of background about you and how you got involved and what led you down the road of getting involved in professional uh, betting? Um, yeah, well, I guess didn't really come from a racing background. I just had a dad that and a granddad that loved betting and used to go to the tab every Saturday afternoon and lose their money every Saturday, but loved every minute of it. And, um, yeah, dad that used to take me along to Saturday morning sport and then on the way home, we'd, we'd stop off at the tab and I'd get to tag along with him and he'd call it a lap of honour going from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and, and all the venues in between and I'd just sort of sit and watch and have the occasional bet and I just really enjoyed reading the form guides and, and seeing all the information and it just it just looked like, like one giant puzzle to me and it always sort of intrigued me and you know, it, it's all through school I, I was the kid at school that had the form guide out on a Friday and was taking bets on the footy and, and the races on Melbourne Cup Day and, and all that sort of thing and, you know, went off to uni, did, did a commerce degree and got a job in finance and, and when I was sort of halfway through uni, uh, my sister actually knew Tom Waterhouse from out and about and I said to her, next time you see him, I ask if you can get me a job at the racetrack. I'd just love to be out there doing anything and and she actually got my first job out there, as, and, and I was a, a bagman for, for him when he, about six months after he started as a bookmaker. And yeah, I was just, I, I loved every minute of it. I just, I, I knew I wanted to be out there. And, I, you know, went to the job Monday to Friday and, and came out clerking on a Saturday and, and thought it was the greatest thing ever. And was, wasn't really, you know, enjoy, enjoying uni, wasn't really enjoying the job when, when uni finished. And, you know, I had my dad that had, Instead of going to the tab on a Saturday when I was working, he'd come out to the races most Saturday. And, you know, all the while, while I was, you know, grow, growing up and in uni and whatnot, I was, I was, you know, reading and formulating my own thoughts. And, you know, mo- like most other people around my generation, I read the, the Don Scott books. And, and what really appealed was, was the idea of sort of catalogic logging horses and, Oh, I used to keep a just a basic spreadsheet of every horse that was sort of running in Sydney and I'd put all sorts of comments in there. I'd, I'd watch every replay I could and just put in all sorts of comments and, and, and keep notes and and look for patterns that I, I could see or, or things that mattered in, in horses' runs and videos and trainers' patterns or jockey patterns or whatever it was and I, I just sort of start trying to price up races from there, I guess, and... Yeah, just um, 
I don't know, it got got to a point where I was I was sort of telling dad what you know, if if I was a boogie this is what I'd lay and this is what price I'd lay it at and all this sort of thing and he could sort of see how miserable I was at my job and whatnot and he was you know, he he, he wanted an excuse to be out there as much as anything and and he said, Look, I'll I'll lend you thirty thousand dollars, we'll get you your bookmaker's licence and, and you know, that that can be your bankroll and you can have a crack at starting your own business and yeah, I was twenty four years old and we went off to the, the licensing committee to, together and yeah, I can still remember now is um all the committee men looking down at us and, and, and each of them taking their time to tell my dad that, you know, he's gonna lose his money, he's gonna lose your money. You may as well try and open a cafe for him or something else <laughs> and my dad was like, No, I believe in him and I think he can he can make a crack at it and so then, um, yeah, I got my license and first meeting was at Gosford and it was pace set of stakes day then and, and takeover target happened to be running and the race is now called the takeover target stakes because it, it won it by five lengths and I think it was five to four into, into six to four on and I think eight races on the day and six favourites won and <laughs> and it was just a, an auspicious start to being a bookie and, you know, with, with a bankroll of $30,000 and you're standing up there and you've got to stand everything to, to lose a thousand on any one bet that comes up to you. I was, you know, by the time any race jumped, I only wanted to stand things for 500. And if I wasn't making the right looking book, I'd, I'd do a lot of betting back and, and the betting back wasn't great. And, you know, I was sort of having lots of poor bet, bet backs to maintain the bankroll, but I was learning while I was doing it. And that, and that was the important thing. And yeah, just sort of kept going along that path and, um yeah just i guess i guess the the important part i learned was i had to be my own judge i guess i be you know it was if you stood up there as a bookie you know the the old times everyone to- told you as a bookie you could just stand up and bet the figures and 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 everything will take care of itself but by the time i got there it, it was sort of a vastly different marketplace. There was wasn't a lot of mug money around, and you had to, in my opinion, use your your judgment to shape your book. And, and that's what I, you know, there were other bookies that were sort of better at shaping their books on figures and numbers, and and they did it their way. And I sort of thought I had to do it a, a different way. And, and the key part of that was when I got to Sydney and I got to the rails, and just by the fluke, I ended up on the outside drawer and, and next to me was Stuart Davidson and I got to peek over his shoulder and see the way he conducted his business and he wasn't afraid to, to be completely contrarian to other bookmakers and how they did things and it just back his judgment on, on what he saw each race and I just thought, well, I've just got to do that myself and live and die by my own, you know, I just, the, the fear driving me was going back to an office job and I didn't want to do that. And I was just sort of, I didn't want to look back and think, oh, I wish I had done it this way. I wish I had done it that way. I just wanted to do it my way. So how did you transition then from a, a young adult or, or through high school to becoming a bookie? Because I imagine there's a vast amount of knowledge you need to capture and, and grasp a lot of different concepts and, and learning on the job with your own cash or your, your father's cash is probably not an ideal way if you want to you know, win 
every single time doing it that way. It's probably not for everyone, I should say. What type of things were you doing to transition? The, the best place to learn was at the racetrack. Unfortunately, it's not something that's readily available now. Like when I showed up as a clerk, as you know, a 19-year-old or 20-year-old or whatever, whatever it was, as a, a bookies clerk, there was so much knowledge in the ring just standing around talking racing in between races before the races after the races and as a young bloke I just used to stand on the edges and listen and learn and being a bookies clerk was was invaluable knowledge standing at the back end watching the computer screen and and how to shape a book and which clients were smart and how to how to judge which ones you know working for the waterhouses was was a good learning in, in that you know they, they knew which clients to play and which clients not to play and, and how to how to treat them accordingly and and you know you, you learnt a lot by doing and and then yeah the main thing was like you have to learn by doing sometimes there's it's you know you can watch and watch and watch and then when you're actually out there doing it yourself it's, it's a whole different ball game and and there's no replicating that there's no learning for that once you start you just got to you just got to you, you sink or swim sort of thing, and, and that's the way it is in this, this game. So take us back to when you were at the track, because you mentioned a few things there about you know who to play and, and what bets to take and things like that. How would it actually like? Were you? How did you learn the language of you know that at the track? Because I'm assuming it's a lot different to what we you know hear these days and some of the things that are happening and, and some of the people how they how they act. It sounds like you're a tradesman. You're learning every single aspect of it. Can you talk about a couple of the things that, or experiences that you had that were huge learning experiences and how you got to consume all that different knowledge? Oh, look, I just remember, you know, a real circle, a group of people like, you know, Stuart Davidson, who I mentioned before, and Terry Griffin and Glenn Pollitt and Steve Caligari. And and these were like really Nick, Nick Katsaris and, these were really great racing minds and they were all there talking and discussing their ideas and they wouldn't have even noticed me lurking on the edges, just sitting there listening and that was the best way to learn. You, you, you listen to the jargon and you'd, you'd pick it up that way and, yeah, that, that, that was the best way. And, and like I said, unfortunately, it's, it's different now but it's sort of been replaced a bit online. But, yeah, it's, it's, um, there's still a lot of great avenues to learn. So that whole theory out there about 10,000 hours you need to apply your trade, things like that when just being there and consuming it and, and being around it and, and listening to different experts and how they go about it and, and picking apart exactly what works for you, is that sort of how you try to approach it? Because I imagine as a, as a young man with a relatively small bankroll, I'm guessing compared to some others, it was scrappy and it was fighting you know, every race, every meeting just to get by. Oh yeah, like every losing day, you you think to yourself, is, is this the beginning of the end? And you know, every losing week, it was like, am I supposed to be doing this? And you know, it wasn't until after you've been doing it three years that you actually feel a bit more comfortable. And it's yeah, I guess that's where the ten thousand hours had come from. That that zero to three years of actually doing it, I guess. Yeah. Did you do anything else during that time to augment your bookmaking? Or no, it was just full-time and I was you know just um focused I just spent I spent you know 14 15 hours a day just doing the form and and working on this spreadsheet that I was doing it it was a lot more laborious process back then doing the form than it is now there's a lot of shortcuts you can use with 
computer programs and all that sort of thing. And back then, everything was very manual. You know, you'd hand clock each horse with a stopwatch and all that sort of thing. And, you know, you couldn't just click on a website and, and watch a replay. I, I used to have to have barrier trials and, and country races sent to me on a VHS. And, you know, that, that's how, how it used to be done. And, you know, there, there was a bit, there was a bigger edge back then because of those because of that effort you had to go to but you know it's a lot more convenient now and i guess it's a lot quicker time wise so looking back during your bookmaking days besides the inherent edge in the market what edge do you think you had or what ways did you go about i guess maintaining your edge it was just my my edge i just always thought was just working harder than anyone else i was never going to be smarter than them i wasn't going to create a whiz bang computer computer model I just had to focus on my area of, of, of expertise and and work as hard as I could at it and try and outwork everyone else. That was that was what it came down to. It just do the form, do it well, and stick to your opinion. And now you wagering full time rather than bookmaking. Yeah, well, about oh, probably going back six six years ago. Now that was we were starting to get. You know, a lot less people on track. Everything was sort of transitioning online, and you know, Betfair just started come in, and you couldn't really access it on track when every other punter that was betting with you could. And then um, EI came along, and there was no racing here for six months, and um, I started betting on West Australian racing because it was a small pool of horses, and I could sort of pick it up quickly, and sort of was enjoying the lifestyle of betting and. and, and picked it up pretty quickly and things were going okay there and then the racing came back in Sydney and I just decided to go back um, on Saturdays only and bookmake and and bet from Monday to Friday on you know all the New South Wales racing that I, that I could and um, after about a year of that sort of became much more feasible and pretty clear to me that I was better off betting full-time and so I sort of gave away the bookmaking and moved on to betting and, you know, form analysis and, you know, using my, my skills in form to help out any other participants in the industry that's sort of looking for an edge and, you know, moved on to selling the tips in the last couple of years as well to augment the income and, yeah, just everything's based around, you know, my, my form analysis, I guess. I must say, based on the some of the previous guests I've spoken to and my understanding of the market, 24-year-old Nathan Snow his business model of laying maximum $500 on a horse seems to be well and truly implemented today based on the online strategy of some of these <laughs> corporates. So I must say you're very prophetic in that sense. Um, yeah, it would, would have been easy to start off now. <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit about your betting strategy now? Do you have a, a situational approach where you attack each race individually or do you have sort of a defined strategy? Are you playing at the the pointy end of the market or focusing on, you know, shorter sprint races or what are, what are some of the things that you look for uh, now? No, I'm generally focused on um, runners that are sort of, you know, above $4 and generally have more success at runners away from the top end of the market. I, I find that it, it gets quite refined and, and, and quite pure, the, the bottom end of the market, and, and things can get missed, uh, you know, at 15, 20 to 1 sometimes at you know, pe- people can sometimes be doing the form quickly, going from race to race, and miss certain runners if they're just focused at the top end of the market. And you, you can get some big overlays if, if you, if you're lucky. And um, 
I've just found over the years my success has been at, at that sort of price range. And I guess it, it probably comes from the bookmaking background where, you know, using your opinion and whatnot, you, you are still generally having the favourites as, as, as chop-outs or, or sort of breaking square at best. And, you know, if you didn't like one, then, then you were trying to make it a big loser. And I guess in, in that respect, I was never really comfortable backing the, the favourites when I moved to the other side because I was always looking for the, the longer price runners to, to keep when I was bookmaking to, to be good results. And, and that's how the transition came about, I guess. So if you are working at $4 and higher, would you then have less bets throughout, you know, a six-month or 12-month period? Uh, and therefore, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and then therefore no less turnover. And, and that does that cause larger swings or does that impact your edge at all because your turnover is less? It, co- it leads to less turnover. It leads to larger swings as well. And you've really got to be able to take the long-term view when you're operating that price range. You've, you've got to... There's a lot of self-belief involved that, that, you know, that, you know, what you're doing and the processes you're doing are right and that the variance will even out over the, the course of the long term. And, you know, the long term in, in, in racing, I, I do believe, is, is three years. And, you know, I said that before, I didn't know but whether I'd survive or not until I got to about year three of bookmaking. And I think it, it, it takes that long for the variance to even out, especially as, as I'm sort of only betting in one state and, having, you know, probably a quarter or a fifth or even less number of bets than the than the guys that are able to bet everywhere. So, yeah, so you've just got to be a, a lot more patient, I guess, and sometimes you've just got to believe. <laughs> so has that changed for you or developed over time with, you know, experience and that, that type of stuff? Because I would imagine you would like to try and smooth out the, the, long, run of, the long run effects, essentially, to try and have a, a more stable... Um, rather than those swings. Have you sort of developed it at all as you've gone? Look, I explored that sort of thing a few years ago, delving more into the shorter end of the market to, to sort of smooth out that variance, and it just didn't work out for me, and it wasn't something that, you know, I felt comfortable doing while I was doing it, and the results sort of weren't really there long-term while I was doing it. So, yeah, I just went back to the other way and, and just, you know, it, it just it, it's it's part of the way I do things that, the ups and downs are going to be steeper and longer than the others, I guess. And what about money management? Because I would imagine if you're working from a you know a five dollar chance to a twenty five dollar chance, money management is critical in in keeping your bank, I guess, alive. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's it's the most important factor in being a successful gambler in whether bookmaking, punting, poker player, whatever is bank management. It's you know I've seen that many better judges than me that many top judges that haven't made it because of poor bank management and i've seen blokes that wouldn't know one end of a horse from another win squillions just because they're sensational gamblers and and it comes down to knowing the marketplace knowing your bank management and mentally not chasing treating each race as a as an individual event and it's very hard to do when you're in battle but you know, only that, that's why only a few people actually, you know, a very small percentage of the market actually make a living from it. It's there's a lot of things you got to do right, and only one thing to do wrong, and 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 you're no good. So, what is sort of the biggest downfall when it comes to money management? Is it that passion factor, and that people are sort of heated, and as they say in poker, a little bit on tilt, and therefore make poor decisions? Yeah, that's generally the number one. It's just general staking as well. Some people just generally bet too big for their bankroll given the variance that is in racing 
people don't understand that you know to you know even the the top top pros will, will have losing months losing quarters and it, it, it's about the long term you know and what about when you're trying to calculate your edge so a lot of people say they, they'll bet based on their edge how i mean obviously it's a lot of subjective analysis but is there certain things you can do to try and calculate why a ten dollar shot is better than the next ten dollar shot well that's that's the key to it isn't it like you, you you do try and separate which races are better betting propositions than others and, and try to stake accordingly, and that's really important. And, and that comes from experience and feel, and if you keep records of your bets, you can go back and analyse that sort of thing, and, and that's really important when you're starting out. And, and um, yeah, you just... It, it, when, you, when, when you're in that first three to five years and you're finding your way and you, you're trying to get that, that right groove, it's... It's all about, you know, being flexible and finding your your right path, but then, you know, sticking solid to it once you're happy with it, you know. I guess, you know, 80% of, of what I do now is, is essentially what I did back then and, and the last 20% of the little tweaks that you add to your, you know, you learn along the way and you, you pick things up here and there and you'll discard one or two things here and there. And, but, you know, the, the base of what you do won't essentially change too much. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on specialization? I know it's sometimes a, a sports betting sort of terminology when there's, you know, lots of different sports around the world, different regions, and even with college sports, there's, you know, different conferences here in the U.S. Do you believe in picking a, a region or, you know, a type of race, for example, or maybe a type of horse and a style of, of running? It might be horses that settle in the first three or four are in your zone and you focus on that. Do you believe in that type of specialization or how do you approach that? Well, I'm just a big believer in the specialization of, you know, working in um, just New South Wales racing and focusing on that because that was basically all I thought my capabilities were. Like I, I knew I wasn't capable of creating a, a top computer model or, or breaking racing down like that. And, you know, that, if I was a young kid right now and I was computer minded, that's the path I'd head but down because you can bet on bet into a lot more events and you know your edge might be smaller, but you can turn over a lot more money if you crack the code. And I guess it's the same in sports betting across the world. The, the big computer teams will, will bet the NBA or the NFL or whatever, but you know there'll be guys out there who can specialise and, and watch the the games and, and know the players and whatnot and get a feel for things and, and can beat the market that way. So, you know, there's always going to be different ways to beat the market and, that, and that's the beauty of of racing and gambling that, you know, there's, there's so many different ways and there's no right or wrong way as just as long as you're winning. So do you delve into sports betting at all? No, I do, but I shouldn't. I just a little hobby better. I'm no good at it. <laughs> okay. Are there any things that you've seen on the, the sports betting side that you're envious of, or you could see maybe translating over to to racing? Uh, it's just the the availability and the information of you know the, the, the constant news about players and and you know everything's just so in the news that you know you, you just envy that if, if racing could have that more than one week a year, it just it'd be wonderful for for the sport, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's Michelle Payne or nothing in the off-season, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So <laughs> you mentioned you specialise in Sydney. What happens when you have a, a whole bunch of Melbourne horses coming up or, or Queensland horses you know, flying in for that weekend? How do you go about approaching that? 
Yeah, well, if there's a lot of them, I, I generally don't bet a lot in that race. And, you know, if there's one or two, I'll, I'll try and ask someone smart that I respect or, you know, I've got a, a, a decent sort of ratings program here that can, can help me line them up to some extent. But, yeah, it's, a, it's all a bit of guesswork for me at, th- at that point. But I ju- just generally take the base view that our horses are, are generally better up to 1,600 or so and I'll, I'll respect the interstate horses when at 2,000 metre plus. But I'm generally trying not to bet too much in the staying races anyway. So. Okay, okay. So how about... I'm interested in how you approach the the massive stables. Like now, we've obviously got Waller and, and Weir. In the past, it was it was Dali with Snowden, and then you had Patnak Farm, and you had now obviously Godolphin. They're in every race. You see them all the time. Oftentimes, they're very short in the market. Do you have a way that you handle them as a whole, or do you just look at each individual race and value that horse based on its ability and its form and its sort of recent history and those type of things? Yeah, I am generally looking at the individual, although, you know, some stables do have patterns that you, you apply to the horses, you know, some some take a while to to get fit in the preparation while others are wound up and ready to go first up and, and that sort of thing. But, yeah, it's, um, yeah it's, it's generally more of a case of the individual in that race. Okay, and can you tell me some of the things you try and do to battle the cognitive bias that comes with something like horse racing obviously if you watch a race and you see something flying home down the outside there's probably a a few reasons why it did that and and based on what some of the other guests have said it's probably not as good as it looks Um, and I guess maybe talk about with trials how trials seem to be I mean they're not real races obviously but they're they're still somewhat competitive in certain respects how do you balance that what you see in the trial do you use the times? Do you use other things to try and factor those in or, or take them out? How do you how do you balance uh, what you're seeing with with other aspects of your form? Yeah, I find times are less important in trials when you're looking at them, but you know they're still a factor, obviously. But it's you, you're looking at a, a few different things. You're looking at sort of the grip the jockey has on the horse. You're looking at how the the horse moves in its action. You know. Um, you're looking at, you know, which stable it's from. Uh, do they do they likely have them ready to go in the trials? Is there much improvement, or, you know, do they sort of play a few ducks and drakes in the trials? And you just sort of it, it, that, that's one of the things that, that that'll always be one of the, the specialisers' edges, I guess, over the, the big bigger programs. That those trials are they're very hard to to quantify without watching an experience, I guess. I want to talk a little bit about Betfair. When when it started, what was its impact in the early stages? I mean, were you bookmaking then, or were you punting then? How, where were you when it came into into Sydney racing? I was still bookmaking at that point, and actually near the end of my time, I was they. So for about a year or so, you were basically betting blind as a bookmaker. You you weren't allowed any computers at your stand, and every punter that had a runner on their phone was looking at Betfair at home and it was like a shooting gallery. And because Betfair was just, is it just a place where every smart punter congregated? There was no, um, I guess their marketing was such that there was, you know, it was hard for them to, to get a lot of recreational clients. The product was so different that there was no real mug money that came along with it. And the market just became very pure on Betfair. 
and they could just see what price things were going to firm at and which the horses were going to drift and you you were at a disadvantage when you couldn't watch Betfair and they could watch Betfair and then it came into a point where the stewards allowed bookmakers to have a look at Betfair and then you could bet back on Betfair if you'd laid a runner on track and I, at that time I was doing a bit of you know, a lot of my books were a lot of bets in the race, a lot of lays in the race, and I was betting with other bookies. And so I was betting with Betfair as well. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to bet there unless I'd laid the horse on track and they fined me $500 because I did the wrong thing and that was fair enough. And, yeah, that was part of the process of, of me deciding that I was better off sitting at home betting at that point. And then about a year or so later, they let Betfair in properly. So... <laughs> How do they monitor that? How do they know if you've laid some, if you've laid the toppy and then you've got to, you're going to bet back on Betfair? How do they actually follow that? Because I imagine you were writing tickets on paper. They weren't automated through a machine or anything like that. No, you would like the laptop. You had to, you had to. Use, if my memory serves me correctly, the laptop you had to buy a new laptop and it had to go to Racing New South Wales to have like monitoring device put on it or whatever before you could use it on your stand. Really? And they could see anything you were doing on that computer, and then you know obviously they had the Betfair records and they had your book records, so everything's time stamped. Yep. So yeah, it was you know it was no big deal. I did the wrong thing, and I I was fined and rightly so. But yeah, it just sort of proved to me that you know what, what wasn't the place for be, for me to be on track at that point. So you're not allowed to just what if you liked a horse in the race and you wanted to have a bet on Betfair? You couldn't do that as a bookmaker. You'd have to do it no, in your personal I, name. I, I, I had to do it. I had to do it with a with a bookie on track at that okay. point. Now, okay. now as a bit, now as a bookie on track, it's you can do what you want on it. And how has it developed from those? I guess the initial stages to to now. Has there been a huge change, or is it still a congregation of the smart players and and mixed in with a few others? Yeah, it still pretty much is that. The occasional whale comes along, but yeah, it's um, it's still it's it's the market setter. It's it's changed the face of the the marketplace here since it's come in. Like, uh, you know, every bookie watches it, every corporate watches it, every punter now watches it, looking for the right time to bet. Um, every person that doesn't need to do form now can can watch Betfair and and make a living if they know how to read a market correctly. It's it's um yeah, it's completely changed the dynamic of everything. It's it stimulates a lot of wagering as it is now. Is it open to any type of sort of market manipulation and, and I guess, foreshadowing oh, on Betfair and things like that? Absolutely. There's, lo- there's lots of games played because, you know, when, when people realised that everyone was, was watching and, and and looking for a lead on it, people the, the smarter, bigger players started throwing a few dummies here and there to, to catch people out and that still goes on. And, you know, it's if you just follow it doing ABC, you'll get beat. There's, there's always a little trick to it. And is there enough volume to, I guess, absorb that, or is it still at a point where it can easily be done if you've got a, a big enough bankroll and you've got enough outs somewhere else that you can, I guess, put that dummy on Betfair and then make a few wages elsewhere to make it worthwhile? Yeah, it doesn't take much to move Betfair. You can, you know, especially early, and you, you can do, you can, you, you can make it. You can you can put it on a string. So. Betfair is the only exchange that I know of. Is there any, are there any other exchanges operating in, on Sydney Racing? 
don't think so. So would it be so. better if there were others, or you know, not so much of a not a monopoly, but a, a single, nah, that, single player? No, the, the, the market's not big enough, as, as Betfair has proven. Unfortunately, I wish Betfair would get more traction, but it um, yeah, it just it doesn't seem to be big enough liquidity here. When you when you look overseas and you look at a race in England, or you look at a soccer match, and unfortunately, it's just yeah, it's just terrible. So what on a scale let's on a scale of one to ten, how ten being the highest value, how valuable has Betfair been to you as a bookmaker or a punter in the past? Is it something that's higher higher on the scale or is it something that you know what, if no one had it it wouldn't be the end of the world because then you would just be playing against each other again? Well, well that's the thing. Like if uh, you know, despite me saying that the Betfair taxes or the recent tax is no good and, you know, we need Betfair to stay for me. Personally, as a form student, it, it, it'd probably be better if Betfair was gone it, without a lot of people knowing when to bet or what price to take it, it. It'd be much easier to get a bet on at different prices and, you know, the market would be much more fluid, I think, instead of just sticking to whatever Betfair is. And um, But, you know, that'd be good for me for three or four or five years. But, you yeah. know, for the long-term health of the market, I, if I want to be betting in 15, 20, 25 years... I, I think Betfair needs to be here. So you think you would lose a lot of those computer-driven programs that are betting at a certain price and the arbitrage yeah. people and those people would just be gone and therefore the, the whole overall market would suffer? Yeah, I, th- I think it stimulates a lot of growth. I think uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people betting that wouldn't be betting if, like the, the argument from, from racing bodies is if they're not betting on Betfair, they'll bet somewhere else. I, I don't think that flies with a lot of Betfair customers. I, I think a lot of them will just move on to sport or just stop betting altogether or go to shares or, or whatever it is. It's 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 not the same w- without it to them. And I understand that point of view. But, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, the market has changed from when racing got all of its funding from a tow business. You know, the, it's, it's, it's completely changed and it's changing quick, even more quickly. And, you know, it's... It's it's what do you want to do? What do you want the market to look like in fifteen twenty years? What do you see it looking like, and and how how are you going to capitalise on it? So is that the only message from Racing New South Wales as to why Betfair shouldn't exist? Is it just because they think people do they legitimately think that people will bet on the tote or with a fixed odds operator if if Betfair's not there, or is there another uh, reason? Look, which... Racing New South Wales argument is you know in their mind and it's a logical argument we, we we've got a product we charge x amount for the product and and if you want to you know use that product you, you're going to pay x amount but the precedent's already been set when you know they charge for tote business seven cents and they charge for fixed odds business two cents so they recognize there's two different types of wagering services in, inside the one business there and they charge them differently so to me, it seems logical you should recognise Betfair as an exchange and not a bookmaker and, and merely a matcher of bets and therefore should be charged at a different rate to a normal bookie. But they just see Betfair as a bookie and therefore they should pay what every other bookie is. And the model, unfortunately, just doesn't jerry for that. So do you think, or is it clear in your mind that it's better for the tote that Betfair is around? Look... So the tote itself, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. The, the tote needs a lot, a lot of resurrecting as, as it currently stands. Unfortunately, it's it's been left to, to die away the last sort of five years with this complete focus on fixed odds everywhere. And you know, 
something needs to be done or, or racing is going to have to look at other means of, of funding to to compensate for for the loss that you know fixed odds turnover while while going through the roof still provides less funding and the logical argument is in 10 years time when the tote is completely gone you know it's it's all going to be fixed odds funding so they're just going to have to keep whacking up the percentage and whacking up the percentage and, and that just won't work long term it's you said it's two cents now yeah, it's two cents now or three cents on major days or something like that. And so what are the bookmakers' sort of average margins on those sort of major days? Is there scope to get it up to three and four and five cents or is that just going to blow everyone away like you can imagine they well, have already had troubles in the past? Look, I had a little bit of experience consulting at a, at a startup bookie last year and I've seen how that, how tough it is at the back end of, of corporate bookies. Like, you know, other than the top one or two, they're the rest of them aren't making a lot of money and it, and it's tough going out there and any more rises it raises above sort of the current levels it's going to get very hard for for them to compete without passing on the, the cost of the consumer and the thing is you know you, you could i think they're in their mind they're thinking well we'll get everyone betting on the tote and the way we'll do that is We'll, we'll keep upping the charges on fixed odds so that their percentage is in line with the tote percentage rather than let's bring down the tote percentage and regenerate it that way. And it's sort of re- reverse thinking because people will just stop betting on racing. That You know, a generation ago when I was growing up, sports betting really wasn't much of a thing. And, you know, if I'm a young kid growing up now and I'm looking at 119% markets on racing and I'm looking at 104, on sport, I know, I know what I'm going to be more attracted to. Yeah, no, the availability as well. There's just so much, so many different products out there, so many offerings. So the yeah, live that's, that's what racing doesn't understand. Everywhere. Racing doesn't understand. It's, it's it's competing against sports betting. It's competing against poker. It's it's not competing against racing in, in New South Wales and racing in Victoria. It, it, it's got its parameters all wrong, unfortunately. So do you have any tips for the Saturday carnival punters who are going to the track or are going to watch some of the some of the big races um, in the you know the spring or the autumn, any sort of small things they could be doing or or maybe even just maybe even just in general some small advantages that you see in in racing in 2017 that the person who doesn't have 14 15 hours a day to do some form uh, can institute and, and hopefully maybe get a win on that day. Oh, Jesus, that's a, that's a tough one. Um... I get. I guess you just the simplest one is is you look for the top stables and the jockeys. They the generally the top stables are training the most winners and, and they're engaging the best riders. And when you put those two together, they're, they're generally thereabouts. But yeah, if if, you, if you're once a sort of week or one, once a year punter, that that's sort of the best tip I can give you. But okay. That that's the thing. It's you know it, it's all about getting those once a year punters to to delve a bit deeper into the game and. Yeah. You know, there's so many layers to it. It's just, you know, it's a it's a puzzle with a thousand pieces, and yeah, it's um the the one the more you peel away, the more you want to get get into it. So, how do you complement and augment your form, sort of outside of racing? Do you do a? I mean, you mentioned some of the Don Scott books and um, a little bit of reading. Is there any other sort of things you can sort of point some people who are sort of semi-professional or getting more involved to that would be valuable for them to sort of augment what they're doing? Oh look, I've I've read a lot of what Dan O'Sullivan does and, and puts out, and he's he's one of the you know the, the best minds in, in Australian racing at the moment, and the way he thinks about it and, and approaches things, it's a bit different to how do, uh, how I do it. But 
I really enjoy reading his stuff and, and seeing how he thinks about it always makes me think and I think it's a great place to start for a lot of people and you know there's a website that I, I do a bit with called Champion Bets and they, they put out a lot of good, good articles for punters and, and, and things to think about so yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot. The other thing is, is Twitter. What, what it's become these days is, is, is a, a heap of information out there and a heap of smart people. If you, if you know the right ones to follow. And what about you today, or this week, or this month, or this year? What are you up to? Are you doing your own stuff and working with Champion Bets? Yeah, just uh, doing that and just um, betting away. And, and yeah, I've got a few subscribers that get my prices and bets and a, and a few little things and chat on a live page for them and yeah just um yeah living the dream still so how can some of the listeners reach out to you if they want to follow you on twitter or get involved in the the live page stuff how what's the best way for that to happen yeah just go to www.championbets.com.au and find me on twitter at snowbet brilliant nathan thank you very very much for your time i really really appreciate it uh all the very best and uh i look forward to chatting again No worries. Talk to you soon.